We Christians believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, according to which the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, at the same time, the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. Now, we Christians, most of us, when we were uh, going to school, we learned, even if we didn't learn the name of this law, we learned what's called the law of transitivity. If A is B, and if B is C, then A is C. So if you say, then how can we possibly say in a logically coherent way, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit? That's a question that we tackle in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to Theapologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Theapologetics. My name is, of course, Chris Date, and I'm so thankful that you are either tuning in live, as I know Jonathan Green and Susan are both doing, um, or if you are watching this after the stream got archived in my channel. Either way, thanks for being here. Um, I really appreciate your time. It's, it astonishes me every day that there are people interested in hearing what I think and what I have to say. Um, and I'm sorry for those of you who find yourself in that position, uh, that you find yourselves compelled to check out what I have to say. But that having been said, I do hope to say some helpful things, things that help edify the church as much as I myself am edified by the church. And I'll leave it to you to decide if I've got something worth sharing. Uh, now, just as I've been trying to remind you guys at the beginning of my show, um, I, the apologetics is part of the Trinity, the Trinity commission. Why, by the way, why is Trinity such a, a word that is so easy to get? I don't know. It's weird. I get tongue tied over it. But anyway, the Trinity Commission is a group of um, podcasts, YouTube channels that are um, in one way, shape or form uh, associated with Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, where I'm an adjunct professor of Bible and theology. You can find Trinity Seminary, by the way, at trinitysem.edu. That's S-E-M, short for seminary, trinitysem.edu. Um, and the uh, podcasts or shows that are part of the commission, the Trinity Commission, they are, most of them, if not at this point, all of them, uh, hosted by professors at Trinity Seminary. So Trinity Radio, for example, is hosted primarily by Braxton Hunter, the president of Trinity Seminary, and sometimes co-hosted by Jonathan Pritchett, the um, uh, vice president for academics at Trinity. And so Trinity Radio is part of the Trinity Commission. Soteriology 101 is hosted by Professor Leighton Flowers, a professor at Trinity Seminary. So Soteriology 101 is part of the Trinity Commission. The Narrow Path is hosted by Steve Gregg, an adjunct at Trinity. So the narrow path is part of the Trinity Commission. Um, and the apologetics is hosted by myself, so it's part of the commission. Um, Chris Featherstone is a professor at Trinity, and so his show, I think, will soon be part of the, of the Trinity Commission. I could be wrong about that. Um, and similarly with Tim Stratton's ministry, um, Free Thinking Ministries. Tim Stratton is a professor at Trinity, and so Free Thinking Ministries may be, if it's not already, a part of the Trinity Commission as well. So if you want to um, 
uh, find out how to connect with those other ministries, how to get plugged in, then just do a search on Facebook for the Trinity Commission and you should find uh, a page for that network of shows and podcasts, uh, one of which is my own. And hopefully in time, we will improve that page. Um, right now it's a bit sort of kludgy and thrown together. Um, we want to improve it and grow the commission. So like that page and hopefully you'll be able to stay easily up to date with um, how the shows that are part of the Trinity Commission now and in the future, um, how we develop. So uh, I guess that's all I want to say by way of introduction. Let me go ahead and um, jump right into the material today. But I want to warn you before I do, as I said in the cold open, that is, that's what that's called, right? When you just, you open right on camera without an introduction. That's the way I like to op to do the apologetics. I like to do a cold open, transition into my intro video, and then into the content proper. Well, at the end of my cold open, I think I said, did I say? <laughs> to buckle up, because this is going to be something of a cerebral episode. Um, and that's because we're going to be talking about what may be the most difficult to grasp um, doctrine in Orthodox Christianity, namely the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity. So we're going to be um, baking our noodles a little bit today, as the prophetess says in The Matrix, the first Matrix, when Neo, um, he's a, he talks to the prophetess and, and she says, what'll really bake your noodle is, you know, would you have uh, dropped it if I hadn't said anything. So anyway, that, that's neither here nor there. So just be be ready for an intellectually difficult episode. But nevertheless, one that I think, um, I, I'm going to offer what I think is uh, a sensible, defensible doctrine of the Trinity. So let me tell you about that. Um, I have a debate coming up in December, just a few months away. With a guy named Jake, uh, I think his name is Brancatella. I, I'm forgetting. I apologize, Jake. I, I just haven't memorized your name yet. I've, I, I know you more as the Muslim metaphysician. So I'm going to be debating Jake, the Muslim metaphysician, in December um, on an episode, a, a live episode of Explain International's debate series. Um, you can see the thumbnail up there on the screen. Jake, the Muslim metaphysician, is on the right. My ugly mug is on the left. And I will be affirming or saying yes to the question, can an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity be logically coherent. Um, so that's going to be um, what we're debating. The title of the YouTube stream, so you can click on it to get yourself notified as the date approaches, is does the Trinity make sense? Question mark. A debate between Chris Date and Muslim metaphysician. It'll be December 4th, 2021 this year. Uh, December 4th is a Saturday. At 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, that would be 9 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Mountain, uh, what, 3 p.m. London time, <laughs> you know, something like that. But anyway, 7 a.m. Pacific and then go up or down from there based on where in the world you're at. Um, so I would very much love for you to be able to tune into that debate. I'd love to hear what you think. But the reason I'm doing this episode is because I want to show my, my hands a little bit. Uh, show my hands uh, is a a reference to poker, right? You might show your hands, namely what uh, what quality of a hand you were you have to play. Uh, it's a, uh, as opposed to keeping your hand close to your chest, keeping your cards close to your chest. Well, I am going to keep some of my cards close to my chest until the debate. 
um, specifically when it comes to an argument I will offer for the the uh, the multi personhood of God being rationally discernible. I don't want to offer that until the debate proper. I don't want to give him too much uh, uh, heads up, but. I did want to give him something of a heads up, Jake, uh, the Muslim metaphysician, something of a heads up on the model of a doctor, the model of the Trinity doctrine that I will defend as uh, both orthodox and logically coherent. Um, I want to reveal my cards a little bit in part so that he knows how to uh, what it is so that he can bring the best, most targeted objections to this model in the debate because if i just spring it on him i fear that won't be much of a meaningful debate because often when we're when we're when we first encounter something new it may be hard to identify the flaws in it and if we're in the middle of a heated debate we might be tempted to just throw out answers and you know without giving them a sufficient amount of thought um, i want to play some of my cards or show some of my cards this far in advance of the debate so that he can prepare the best objections possible so that we can test whether the model i'll be defending is in fact both orthodox and logically coherent and that title that thesis that we'll be debating that i'll be affirming and that he'll be denying can an orthodox doctrine of the trinity be logically coherent this was um something that we worked together to come up with and that i uh, i in uh, jake the, the muslim metaphysician and other Unitarians like Dale Tuggy, they make a really big deal about there being supposedly multiple doctrines of the Trinity. Now, most of us Trinitarians, I think, would say that's baloney. There aren't multiple doctrines of the Trinity. What there are are different variations of a core Trinity doctrine. So there's a core Trinity doctrine that then gets expressed and fleshed out in nuanced by um, competing variations or variants of that core doctrine. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there are multiple tr doctrines of the Trinity. Well, I didn't want to debate, is the doctrine of the Trinity logically coherent? Because that's just playing into my opponent's hands, who says there is no the doctrine of the Trinity. There are doctrines of the Trinity, some of which may be orthodox, others of which may be logically coherent, but none of which are both. That's what I think my opponent would say, that you do a survey of all the various models of the Trinity doctrine, and you're, you're going to find that to a T, every one of them is either unorthodox or illogical. It, it either isn't orthodox or it isn't logically coherent. So I proposed something like, and, and then we fleshed it out to what it looks like now, can an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity be logically coherent? So what I will be doing is offering what I take to be one doctrine of the Trinity or model of the Trinity that is both orthodox and logically coherent, but I'm not defending it as the only possible such doctrine of the Trinity. There plausibly or others, especially if the one I offer is in fact both orthodox and logically coherent. That would suggest that there may be others. Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm going to be presenting a model of the Trinity that I take to be both orthodox and logically coherent. And I want to hear what you think. In fact, I'll field questions, maybe discuss it a little bit with you after these slides I've prepared. Um, but then also, please leave your comments under the video. Shoot me emails at the email address on the screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com. I'd love to hear where you think the holes in this um, model might be. Okay, so... Let's start with what it means for a doctrine of the Trinity to be orthodox. Well, it makes sense. General, I would say generally speaking, when we ask if a doctrine of the Trinity is orthodox, what we mean is does it cohere with the early ecumenical 
creeds that collectively and progressively define the doctrine of the Trinity. So the Nicene Creed, for example, confesses that we believe in A, the Father, B, Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God, being of one substance, sometimes called essence, the Greek word is ousia, uh, with the Father, and C, the Holy Ghost, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So we could start with that um, abbreviation of the Nicene Creed, and we would get three, you know, truths um, that partially comprise an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Those three truths being the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But there's more. Um, the Chalcedonian Creed, or the Creed of Chalcedon, or the Chalcedonian symbol or definition or definition or symbol of Chalcedon, however you want to put it, it also says that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, consubstantial or coessential with the Father. Uh, the Greek word here is homoousios, uh, not homoi. Usios. That was a part of the debate that um, was what was reconciled by um, this creed or confession. Um, Hamoi usias would be similar substance or comparable substance or substance of the same kind. Hama usias means same substance, not like substance, but same substance. So we need to add a fourth. Uh, truth to our list of truths that constitute an unorthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Namely, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share one substance. Or to put it simply, there is one only, there's only one God. But there's more. Uh, and, by, and by the way, substance here is substance in, in, the, in philosophical jargon. Um, substance in the jargon of philosophy means something like concrete object or concrete entity. All right? But there's more. The Athanasian Creed, which isn't really, the, if I remember correctly, a creed that Athana Athanasius actually wrote. It's more a creed that faithfully captures the doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity as taught by Athanasius during the period of time where it was Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, when most of the rest of Christendom was sliding into the heresy of Arianism. And the creed says we believe in one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons. There's more there that we'll get to in a minute. But this language of confounding the persons means not confusing them one for the other. They're distinct from one another. Always. So we need to... Uh, so, um, and, and why this is important is because of one common uh, heretical... Uh, bad analogy for the relationship between the persons and being in the Trinity. Uh, Wayne Grudem offers a, a form of the analogy like this. You might have a man who is a farmer, a mayor, and an elder, right? A farmer, a mayor of his town, and an elder of his church. But such a man is only one person. They're just doing three activities at different times. And of course, the analogy can't deal with the personal interaction among the members of the Trinity. And this is a, this is a fairly uh, stock accepted um, understanding of modalism, the heresy of modalism, uh, according to which there is only one person who 
um, well, uh, there is only one person in God, and that person is the Father in some circumstances, the Son in others, and the Holy Spirit in others. Or the Father in some contexts, the Son in other contexts, the Holy Spirit in other contexts. That would not be, um, this analogy that is modalistic wouldn't satisfy the um, language of the creed, which says that we don't confound the persons, they are distinct persons. So that means we have to add a fifth truth to our list of truths that constitute an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Namely, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Spirit. In other words, they're eternally distinct from one another. But there's more. The Nicene Creed says that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Father before all worlds, and that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and, of the, and from the Son. Now, there are going to be some Trinitarians who would deny that Jesus Christ is begotten of the Father before all worlds, because they would argue that the biblical language that used to be translated only begotten, the Greek word monogonase, does not mean only begotten, but rather one of a kind. And they would say that when the uh, New Testament says that, uh, quotes the Father as saying, today I have begotten you, what begotten there refers to is... Um, uh, uh, publicly pronouncing the um, veracity of Jesus's identity and claims, right? So it's, um, or to having raised him from the dead. So begotten in that sense doesn't refer to, it refers to something after Christ's incarnation in that sense of begotten. Many uh, Orthodox arguably, uh, Orthodox Trinitarians would say, would, would deny these the, these aspects of the Father begetting the Son before all worlds and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son in, in that way. Um, and I'll leave it to them to reconcile their views with this language of the Nicene Creed. What I want to do here is try to defend a logically coherent doctrine that is Orthodox according to these creeds. And I think the authors of these creeds took begotten of the Father to mean that in eternity past, the Father has always been the ground of the Son's existence. Um, not that he was, not that the Father created the Son at some point. In fact, the creed explicitly denies that the Son was made. He was begotten, according to the creed. So it's, it's more the language of contingency. The um, it, It's sort of like, think about the, this is an, anal an analogy I got from Matt Slick years ago. He, um, w when he's trying to explain how something can be logically subsequent to something without being temporally subsequent to something, uh, he offers the analogy of a light bulb. A light bulb has, or at least an old light bulb that some of us old farts are used to, they have a glass, it's a glass bulb inside of which is a filament, and when electricity flows through the filament, the filament produces light. Well, what does that mean? It means the light, even though it's produced at the same time that electricity flows through the filament, the light is being, in other words, it's temporally simultaneous with the flowing of the electricity through the filament, but it's not logically um, simultaneous. It's logically subsequent to electricity flowing through the wire or the filament. Well, in the same way, the creed seems to be saying that the Father is logically antecedent or, or antecedent to before, logically before, foundational of the Son. 
So if we want to defend a doctrine of the Trinity that is that is orthodox in that sense of being um, uh, coherent with the Nicene Creed, I think we've got to add a sixth truth to our list of truths that comprise a doctrine of the Trinity that is orthodox, and that is that the Son and the Spirit logically are logically contingent on the Father. Logically contingent. Not necessarily temporally after or anything, but logically contingent on the Father. But there's more. <laughs> Don't worry, this is the last one. The Athanasius, uh, Athanasian Creed says that ni neither confounding the persons, we quoted that earlier, but also not dividing the substance. Not dividing the substance. So we're, we're not confusing the persons one for the other. They are eternally distinct, and yet they don't divide the one substance um, that they all share. Them sharing it is what makes them homoousios of the same substance. And that same substance that they all share isn't divided between them. Here again, um, this is what rules out some really problematic analogies of the Trinity. Uh, so, for example, Wayne Grudem, he observes the problem with the uh, with analogy that is favored by some lay Christians, that of a three-leaf clover. He says a three-leaf clover has three parts and yet remains one clover. But the reason this fails is because each leaf is only part of the clover. And any one leaf cannot be said to be the whole clover. That seems to contradict that language that we just saw in the Athanasian Creed. So we need to add a seventh truth to our list of truths that constitute an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Namely, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not parts of a divisible substance. So this is what I take to be the criteria for an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. I'm open to, being, I'm open to there being more. And I'm open to number six and number seven not being a part of this list, but I would have to be shown how six and seven aren't required by the language of Nicaea, and Nicaea and Athanasius, the Athanasian Creed. Until and unless that happens, I'm going to say that these are the seven criteria for orthodoxy. All right, so what I'm gonna to offer today is a model of the Trinity that I think meets these seven criteria. But let's move now to what it would mean for a doctrine of the Trinity to be logically coherent. So we've got these seven criteria that constitute an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. But whether it's logically coherent, or maybe I should put it this way, what is alleged to be its, its logical incoherence is um, focused on these four truths in our list. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and the Father is not the Son is not the Spirit. Uh, more precisely, it hinges on or focuses on this claim that it's logically inco incoherent, trades on or focuses on these is's and is nots. You see, um, the law of transitivity states something like, if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. And we might put this another way, by saying, if x is y and y is z, then x is z. Now, this is just straightforward common sense. It's also a law of transitivity that is obeyed by um, or recognized by mathematicians and logicians, right? So it's a law of both mathematics and logic, which some might argue is just one and the same. <laughs> 
But nevertheless, the point is, is that this is a law of transitivity. If something violates this law, then it would be logically incoherent. The is in this statement is what's called the is of identity. Not just that X is Y-ish and that Y is Z-ish, but that X is Z and that Y is Z. And if that's true, sorry, X is Y and Y is Z. Therefore, necessarily, logically, X is Z. Well, so plug that back into our um, truths here that we're highlighting, one, two, three, and five. If is in the truths one through three is the is of identity, then they are logically incoherent with the is nots in truth five, which are the is of identity, right? Because going back to the law of transitivity, if the father is uh, God and if the son is God, that would be like saying if X is Z and Y is Z, then X must be Y. But we are saying in truth five that X is not Y. So if we say that the is in truths one, two, and three is the is of identity, then what we, and, and we know, we, we just simply mean the is of identity in truth five, we're just negating it, saying is not, then we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. Or as I like to say, we're trying to eat our cake and have it too. Which, by the way, was the original way that idiom was expressed. In other words, we're trying to say the Father is God and the, and the Son is God, and, and that we're using the is of identity there, while at the same time saying they are is the, the Father is not the Son, where we're also using the is of identity. So we're we're basically violating the law of identity, we're, uh, right? The or the law of non-contradiction. We're saying that it's possible for for A to be both. Be and not be at the same time and in the same way, and and that that's a that's a problem. Thankfully, there's another use of the word is. So in the statement, the cat's skeleton is feline, its heart and its heart is feline, but its skeleton is not its heart. The first two ises are the is of predication, right? The cat's skeleton. Uh, or, or the, the quality of felinity, the quality of felineness is predicable. It can be predicated on or to, attributed to the skeleton. And the same is true of its heart, right? Both its skeleton and its heart, the cat's anyway, is, is equally the uh, attributable. It can be predicated equally, attributed equally to both the cat's skeleton and its heart that it is feline. And then we can say its skeleton is not its heart and use the is of identity and we're good to go, right? Um, there's no contradiction in this statement, but we may run into a problem still. And by the way, this is, this statement here that I've quoted is a paraphrase of William Lane Craig um, in, a in a document you can find if you just Google William Lane Craig Trinity and look for a, an article that starts with like a defense of the doctrine of the Trinity or something like that, you'll see him make this very point that we can, that, that a skeleton, a cat skeleton is feline, not according to the is of identity, but the is of predication. And the skeleton can be feline and the heart can be feline without saying that the skeleton and the heart are identical. And he's right there. But I posit that he runs into the problem I'm about to identify, which is that if these three statements use this is of predication, uh, the father is divine or the son is divine, the spirit is divine, 
then they seem incoherent with truth number four. Because they no longer seem to share the one substance. They seem to be three substances. Three concrete entities. Remember, that's what substance means in the philosophical jargon. So, so these, if these truths, one, two, and three, use is a predication, then they seem logically incoherent with truth number four, even if they are coherent with truth number five. So it seems like we're sort of on the horns of a dilemma. Right. Either we say is is the is of predication in truths one, two, three and five. But then we we are being logically coherent, incoherent because one, two and three would contradict five. Or we say that the is in truths one through three is the is of predication, in which case it's no longer logically incoherent with truth five. But it does seem logically incoherent with truth four. So this seems to not be a uh, does not seem to make the doctrine logically coherent. So what we're when we talk about the a doctrine of the Trinity that is uh, that is both orthodox and logically coherent, what we're saying is that an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is logically coherent if it affirms each of these criteria without logically contradicting itself. And I'm going to offer what I take to be a model of the Trinity that is orthodox and logically coherent in just this way. So here's what I want to start with. I want to say that the beginning of an orthodox and logically coherent doctrine of the Trinity is to say that in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, the word is, and by the way, substance is the translation of that Greek word ousia that I told you about earlier, the, the basis of the word homoousios, consubstantial of the same substance. And person is the translation of the Greek word hypostasis, which is where we get the word hypostatic from in the phrase hypostatic union. So hypostasis is person, and these creeds allege that there are three hypostases in the one ousia, or substance, of God. Okay, so in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, I want to propose that is means something like subsists in the being of. Now, I'll explain that in a moment, um, but just l lest anybody think that I'm sort of uh, contradicting myself in what I've said in the past, I've used this very definition in my debate with Dale Tuggy. <laughs> Susan asks, why does Bill Clinton come to mind? And yeah, I totally get it. What is is? It depends on what you mean. It depends on what is is, right? So I get it. But but that's the nature of philosophy and logic is that you have to get ever more precise. You have to get to the point where it's so, you know, extremely precise. And that's a good thing. That's, um, that's how we can evaluate whether uh, belief systems and propositions are coherent and true as we get really precise and then we evaluate them according to the most precise uh, we can get. Uh, but anyway, so in my debate with Dale Tuggy, I made this very point, um, both in the uh, live debate we did and in our published edition of it, which, by the way, is uh, this book right here. <laughs> um, is Jesus human and not divine? Question mark. A debate is the title, and you can find it by going to Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date. And uh, I'm um, 
the, the nature of that statement is such that my Unitarian opponent, Dale Tuggy, uh, affirms that statement, Jesus is human and not divine, whereas I deny that statement because I say he is human and divine. Right. But anyway, in that book and in that live debate, I made the same statement that P, uh, that person, um, that when we say a person is uh, a substance, like the Father is God, what I'm saying is the person that is the Father subsists in the being of God. What I am doing here, however, is um, further fleshing that out. Because at the time, and I'm still learning, hopefully all of you are learning too. If, if any of you, are, you know, are, understand your worldview as a Christian exactly the same way you did 10 years ago, five years ago even, or maybe even two years ago, you're not learning and, and you should repent. <laughs> I'm learning. Um, and sometimes I, well, in this case, I didn't know quite what I meant when debating Dale Tuggy by saying person subsists in the being of God. I just knew that it had that that person was abstract and substance is concrete. Um, and I and I think I might have said that P is uh, subsists in the being of S in the way that a property subsists in um, uh, in an object. Uh, like the hardness of a door subsists in the door's being its substance. Um, so, so this is consistent with what I have debated, uh, with what I've argued in my debate with Dale Tuggy. Um, but I want to try to flesh it out more today. And I'm beginning by fleshing that out to say that in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, is means something like subsists in the being of. So I could say, um, uh, in this picture, which you cannot see very well, um, these are my four sons. Uh, from years ago. I'm having trouble. So this this is Brandon, my oldest. He's now uh, 20. In this picture, he was probably 12-ish. Uh, this is our next youngest, Logan. This is our next youngest, Sawyer. And this is our youngest, Miles. Miles was uh, roughly almost one. He's probably nine months at the time. Um, now he's eight. So this was a while ago, but anyway, the point is, when I'm saying brand, this is Brandon, or, or Brandon is this person, Brandon is this human being, what I mean is that Brandon, the, the person that is Brandon, subsists in this human being, the being of this human. This, uh, if I say Logan is this human being, I'm saying that the person of Logan subsists in the being of this human and so on and so forth. The person that you are looking, that you are being spoken to by right now, Chris, subsists in the being of the human that you can see on your screen. Okay? That's what I'm proposing here as the beginning of um, a both orthodox and logically coherent understanding of the Trinity. Whereas a statement like P1 is not P2, like the Father is not the Son, is does mean is not identical to. Okay, so the is and the P is S statements isn't quite the is of predication. Um, it is, it's not that the is changes, it's that the categories being compared change. In a statement like P is S, you're comparing an abstract with the concrete in which it subsists. But in a statement like P, uh, P is not, uh, P1 is not P2, you're comparing two abstracts. Okay, but we're not done. We'll, we'll, we'll flesh this out a little more. 
Now, what I mean by subsist then is that if X, if anything, subsists in substance S, then X is abstract and has no being independent of its concrete substance. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, take a, a red apple, for example, like the one on your screen. In the philosophical jargon, we would say there's one concrete substance, namely the object that is the apple. Now, of course, that is a compound substance because, as we know, the apple is actually constituted of millions of molecules, each of which has two or more or one or more atoms, right? So there's millions and millions of atoms, each of which is its own concrete substance, but those collectively form the, con the compound substance that is this apple. But something, an example of an abstract that subsists in the substance that is the apple is the apple's redness, right? The, the apple's redness has no being of its own. It's not concrete. It, it, um, it, it's not, uh, you can't take its redness and separate it from the apple in which that redness subsists, right? So the property that is the apple's redness subsists in a concrete substance, namely the apple's being. But there's a problem here. If I try to just simply apply the language of property to the, the persons in the Trinity, I think we might run into a problem. This is an article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy Online, uh, an article called Properties. And they write this, properties are those entities that can be predicated of things, or in other words, attributed to them. And at least since Plato, who called them ideas or forms, properties are viewed as universals. In other words, as capable, in typical cases, of being instantiated by different objects, shared by them. Now, the problem here, or at least a problem here, is that a simple property is a universal, shared by all concrete substances that exemplify or instantiate it. And if this, this kind of simple property, is what the persons in the Trinity are, then they are identical, albeit exemplified multiply, multiple times, you know, exemplified multiple times over. But they would still be identical, because that's what properties are. They're universals that are shared by the things that exemplify or instantiate them. By the way, this is also a pro this is even more a problem if you believe that um, abstracts have concrete being. Um, that form or ideal that Plato talks about, he thinks a lot of, uh, even today, some Christian philosophers think those properties or ideals or forms, they have real concrete existence in something like a realm of ideas. And that, and that would make this even more problematic because that would just mean that the um, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are just the same um, property that exists outside of, you know, transcending the concrete being of God, you know, realm of ideas or something like that. So it becomes even more problematic. So I don't think that a simple property is going to necessarily solve our problem here. However, that same article makes an interesting distinction. According to a different conception, 
Properties are themselves particulars, not universals, but particulars. But those particulars aren't concrete particulars like a substance. They are abstract particulars. As so conceived, properties are nowadays commonly called tropes. The article goes on. Uh, oh, sorry, this is a different article. Or this is a different article. So this article, Properties in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, written by Francesco Aurelia and Michelle Paolini Pauletti, it links that word tropes to a different entry in the encyclopedia called, guess what? Tropes. <laughs> this one written by Anna Sophia Maurin, or Morin, or Morin, something like that. Uh... Anna Sophia writes, tropes are things like the particular shape, weight, and texture of an individual object. That there are tropes seems prima facie reasonable if we reflect on such things as perception. I don't see color in general. I always see the color of the particular object whose color I'm perceiving, right? So what exists when a trope exists is an abstract particular. It's not concrete because it has no existence on of its own. It subsists in the concrete substance in which it subsists, but it's also a particular, not a universal. There is no other um, that, that apple, go back to this apple. If the redness is a if its redness is a trope, not just a simple property, then there is no other um, instance. There, there is no other identical trope. The, 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 the redness of this apple just is the redness of this apple and none other. Even if the redness of this apple and the redness of some other apple are virtually identical um, instantiations of a redness trope. Or, or a redness property, right? So maybe we could say that the, tr the property is universal and the trope is the instantiation, the particular instantiation of that universal, right? So then this apple's redness and some other apple's redness, they might both be instantiations or exemplifications of a property called redness, but this redness is this apple's redness and the other redness is the other apple's redness. So they're distinct, they're particular, and yet they're abstract. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about tropes. It's like a property, except that a property, traditionally understood, is a universal, whereas a trope is a particular. Both properties and tropes are abstracts, but a property is an abstract um, universal, whereas a trope is an abstract particular. And what I want to suggest is that, definitionally, a trope is the abstract yet particular exemplification of what might be a, a universal property. And if this, a trope, is what the persons are, then they are distinct. And yet, they subsist in a single concrete substance. So we can flesh out my earlier statement a little bit more. In a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, P is also a trope or abstract particular. And is means something like subsists in the being of. And then in a statement like P1 is not P2, is means is not identical to. Now I think we're getting something, to, uh, getting to something that is logically coherent. Um, 
But it does raise the question, what in the world could it mean for person in this Trinitarian distinction between person and being to be an abstract particular? That's where it really starts to bake the noodle. What could it mean for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to each be an abstract particular rather than a concrete entity? Well, here's where I want to introduce you to a distinction that I'm seeing in the literature of um, psychology and neuroscience. Um, it seems to me as if link some, anyway, uh, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists distinguish between the self as object versus the self as subject. So here's Mateusz Wozniak in an article called I and Me, The Self in the Context of Consciousness, which you can find in uh, Volume 9 of Frontiers in Psychology. It's Article 1656. It's available online. You should be able to find it for free. It says... Uh, Matthias Wozniak writes, me, in quotes, reflects the phenomenology of selfhood. What that means is the experience of selfhood. But more precisely than that, the composite that is the object of self-experience. So if you say, I am Chris, or uh, yeah, I am Chris, or I am me, me is everything about me um my hands you know my body my mind that's uh whether or not you believe mind is a separate substance or just a property of the one substance that is the body either way me is my body it's my mind um it's it's everything i identify as myself as the object of identification so me reflects the phenomenology of selfhood, and it's known variously as sense of self, self-consciousness, or phenomenal selfhood. But I, like in that statement, I am me, I is rooted in metaphysics of subjectivity. And it refers to the question, why is all conscious experience subjective, and who or what is the subject of conscious experience? Another way to put it is that me refers to understanding of the self as an object of experience, right? The, the self I experience as the object of my experience, while I refers to the self as a subject of experience. Um, put another way, me is self as object or the experienced self. Whereas I is self as subject, or the experiencer itself. In fact, this word experiencer is the word that Braxton Hunter likes to use to refer to person. Another way to put it, by uh, another way Malteus Wozniak puts it, is the I is the metaphysical I, the subjectivity inherent to any conscious experience. That's what I want you to key in on here, is that when we talk about self as subject or the metaphysical I, what we're talking about is the subjectivity inherent to any conscious experience. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's where I think we're going to get a little fun. I'm going to introduce you to a game called PUBG, if you're not already familiar with it. PUBG is an abbreviation of Player Unknown's 
Battlegrounds. Three words. Player Unknowns Battlegrounds. And it's a first-person shooter, although it allows you to, oh, among other things, it's 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 the uh, type of game that m- is most attributed with launching the Battle Royale kind of game that we see in the likes of Fortnite. And although it's a first-person shooter, it gives you the, op- the option to choose between either first-person perspective or third-person perspective. And I want to use a clip here that I recorded of myself playing the game. Yeah, I'm a nerd. I like to play games. Um, video games. I particularly like PUBG. Particularly on the PC, not as, not as much so on the Xbox, although I do very much enjoy loving... Uh, I do very much enjoy playing it with Braxton Hunter and some other friends of ours on the Xbox. It's just if I'm by myself, I go with the PC. Because it's way easier to aim with a mouse than with a thumbstick. But anyway, I want to show you... I'm, I'm going to show you a clip here that begins in first-person perspective, but then transitions to third-person perspective. And I'm, and I'm going to try to use that to help you to wrap your mind around the difference between self as object and self as subject. Between the me that is the, the experienced self and the I that is the um, subjectivity of experience or the experiencer itself. So here's a short, here's where the clip begins, and you can see it's as if I'm looking through the eyes of my avatar in the game. That's first person perspective, but now I've switched to third person perspective. Okay. Um, now I've paused it here. And self as object, if you, if you think of this avatar as analogous to a being, uh, a personal being, um, in this case, it's analogous to a soldier out on a or, or a combatant in a battle royale game character, uh, you know, represented by PUBG. Um, this avatar is self as object. But this is self as subject. If you can't tell, this hand is pointed at the avatar. But where is this hand pointed at? It's not pointed at anything. Nothing concrete. Now, yes, in the um, mechanics of the game's programming, it is, in fact, pointing at something. Um, there will be a camera entity in the game's programming that uh, that started out in the uh, head of your avatar but has now been moved over its shoulder. So yes, in the mechanics, in the in the programming of the game, there is an entity there. But I'm saying, imagine for a moment that this is a uh, uh, that this is a real world example, not an example in a game. In a real world example, there is only this object. Even if substance dualism is true, the object is the body and its and the and its and the soul that is united to it. That is that is the mind. Um, but this, the thing that the hand is now pointed at, this is what these psychologists and neurologists, neuroscientists mean by self as subject. The subjectivity inherent or innate to conscious experience. That's not a what, right? It's not a, um, concrete entity, It's a property, or more specifically, a trope, an abstract particular of the concrete that is the 
soldier here. The concrete substance is the soldier. If it's a compound uh, or a compound of substances, you've got the body that is the substance, which itself is a compound substance because it's made up of atoms, and then an, and then a non-physical substance called the soul. But even the soul as mind has a trope, namely the subjectivity that is particular, the, the, the subject, the subjectivity of that conscious experience. And in the case of any ordinary creature, in the case of any creature, period, with the possible exception of people who have dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder, in any creature that is personal, there is only one subjectivity of consciousness. Uh, there is only one subjectivity of self uh, of conscious experience. But what if at the exact same time there are three subjectivities of experience? Right? So here is the same basic clip but played from three different subjectivities, th three different perspectives. Here's one, right? This is the subjectivity located um or the subjectivity yeah located within the head of the of the avatar here's the subjectivity located to the right and over the shoulder of the avatar and then here's the subjectivity that is located at the um or that is experiencing from the perspective of down and to the below and to the left of the avatar but there's only one concrete substance in what this analogizes Right? Again, in the game mechanics, in the technology, in the programming, there are cameras, camera entities. But I'm saying, imagine, treat that as an analogy for real-life human experience. All the, you, you always experience um, your conscious experience from the subjectivity of, you know, the, the subjectivity that is located behind your eyeballs. In... Um, even in even in out of body experiences, let's take let's take for granted, for the sake of argument, that in an out of body experience, a person's non physical soul, which is a substance, becomes separated from the body. Well, even there, there is the conscious experience, but there's also the subjectivity of that conscious experience. And in the case of a disembodied soul that is looking down upon its um, body that is now dead, the subjectivity would be from wherever the perspective is that the that the now dead body is being viewed from so conceptually this seems perfectly logical you've got three subjectivities three selves as subject three experiencers three subjectivities inherent to conscious experience but just one self as object the same, this is especially plausible if we're dealing with the infinite being of God. See, the problem with the analogy here is that um, each subjectivity is, is experiencing only a subset of the whole being's conscious um, experience. Right? So the first person is seeing this part of conscious experience, and then the, the second one is like from over the head, and the other one is from down here. They're seeing parts of, they're, they're, they're experiencing parts of, this, of the conscious experience. So, so it breaks down. But in the infinite being of God, the, the, expand, or the bound, boundless experience, the boundless conscious experience of God can conceivably have multiple subjectivities. 
if that subject, if, if any one of its subjectivities is a trope, a, a, an abstract particular of what may or may not be a universal property. And by the way, it could be a universal property, personhood. So there is an ab, we arguably, you could say there's a universal property known as personhood. And then there are tropes that are particular exemplifications of that universal property abstract particulars of that universal property um there where, where was i going with this um so yeah yeah so there would be no since since properties or since a trope subsists in being and is not a part of it is not you it's not like you can take um a concrete substance and, and break part uh, uh, break part of it into um, one property and part of it into another. Right? Uh, take for example a door. The hardness of a door. Um, a door you can split into multiple parts. Uh, you can say there's the top half and the bottom half. But the top half's hardness just is the hardness of the bottom half. So likewise. It, the subjectivity of a conscious experience isn't part of a door. It's just the subjectivity of the conscious experience. Uh, sorry, it's not, the, it's not a part of the substance in which it subsists. It's a, uh, um, it's a property of the whole substance. And there doesn't seem to be anything illogical, even if it is really hard to wrap our minds around because it's so unlike our own universal human experience. Um, there's no logical reason why you couldn't have three subjectivities that subsist in the one being of God, provided that they are abstract particulars and not universal abstracts. So this is what I think we Trinitarians mean by God is three who's and one what. So to flesh this out a little bit more, in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, P is also a trope or abstract particular. And is means something like subsists in the being of. Whereas in a statement like P1 is not P2, is means is not identical to. And, and this I've already shown, but here's where I'm fleshing it out a little bit more. To say the Father is God is to say an abstract particular known as the Father, one metaphysical I or subjectivity of conscious experience, subsists in God's one substance. But the abstract particulars known as the Son and the Spirit equally subsist in God's one substance. So here you've got what I'm offering. These four bullets here, I think I'm trying to say is what I'm offering as um, the model of the Trinity that I think is both orthodox and logically coherent. The first statement, the first way of modeling this out is to say that in a statement like P is S, where P is a person and S is a substance, P is a trope or abstract particular, and is means something like subsists in the being of, and in a statement like P1 is not P2, is means not identical to. And then thirdly, to say the Father is God is to say an abstract particular known as the Father, one metaphysical I or subjectivity of conscious experience, subsists in God's one substance, and the abstract particulars known as the Son and the Spirit equally subsist in God's one substance. This is what I think is a logically coherent and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I all these slides that I prepared, I prepared up to about five minutes before showtime, so there was a little more I wanted to say, so I'm going to go back to the list of criteria that I have offered for an, for an orthodox 
doctrine of the Trinity and test what I've just said verbally, out loud, according to these seven truths. So I've already said that the, when I say the Father is God, what I'm saying is the abstract particular known as the Father, that particular metaphysical I or a subjectivity inherent to conscious experience, subsists in the being of God. And I'm saying the same thing about the Son. The, another abstract particular, this one, the metaphysical I or, conscious, or subjectivity inherent to conscious experience known as the Son, subsists in the being of God. And similarly, number three, the Spirit is a third abstract particular, a metaphysical I or subjectivity of conscious experience known as a Spirit that subsists in the being of God. So one, two, and three fits. Uh, it's it's uh, my, what I've offered affirms all three of those statements. Number four, they share one substance. Well, that's what I've just said. Just like the single concrete substance that is the soldier in PUBG, um, the being of God is one. There is only one being of God. And in that one being of God subsist these three subjectivities of conscious experience that are abstract particulars. They have no concrete being on their own. They subsist in, as abstract particulars of, the one, the one substance that is God. So we meet criterion number four. Criterion number five, the Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. Remember, what I've said is that in statements like P is S, which would be the statements of one, two, and three here, is means subsists in the being of. Whereas in a statement like P1 is not P2, which is the kind of statement we see in number five, and, and yes, Taylor, I, I know your brain is starting to melt, mine is too, but it is, but it is starting to make sense, doesn't it? It is actually making sense, at least it seems that way to me. Anyway, I'll finish what I'm, what I'm saying. Thanks for saying as much, Taylor. So in the statement, the Father is not the Son is not the Spirit, I'm using is to mean um, is, not or is identical to, and I'm saying it's not. So the Father, P1, is not P2, is not identical to P2, even though both P1 and P2 are both equally God in the sense of subsisting in the being of God. So what I've offered meets criterion number five. Well, what about criterion num number six? Son and Spirit logi are logically contingent on the Father. Well, there's nothing that would, as far as I can tell, preclude one trope from being dependent upon another, logically. So, for example, and this is uh, an imperfect analogy, but remember the analogy of the apple I offered earlier. Um, the apple has a trope that is its redness, and it has the trope that is its hardness and then it has what could be argued to be the trope that is its redness and its hardness like the union of those two things well that depends logically on the other two you can't have its redness and its hardness if you don't first have its redness or its hardness that's an imperfect analogy but the point is you can have a property in this understanding of the of the term a trope an abstract particular that is logically dependent upon another property that seems reasonable to me so, one could say that, it, that although they are equally eternal, the sun, that metaphysical eye or that subjectivity inherent to conscious experience depends logically on or is begotten by an eternity past the metaphysical eye or subjectivity inherent in conscious experience called the father. And similarly with the sun, sorry, with the spirit. So that is reasonable so far as I can tell, logically coherent. 
There's nothing that seems to preclude one property from being logically dependent upon another, or one trope from being logically dependent upon another. And I bet you could come up better examples than the one I did where the compound trope is just dependent upon the individual tropes. And then what about seven? They're not parts of a divisible substance. Well, um, remember what I said about a door's hardness. If you look at the top half of a door, its hardness is not distinct from the hardness of the bottom half of the door. They share the same hardness, right? Um, you can't take an abstract that is a property or trope of a substance and divide it uh, across, or sorry, you can't take a substance and divide it into part of that substance that has the trope and another one that does not. Or maybe you could do that with some tropes, but not all. So for example, maybe you could say that the trope that is topness, you know, top halfness, maybe that is attributable to just the top half of the door, but not so with hardness, provided the door is just is one substance and you're just identifying parts of it. Uh, one of those articles that I, or that article that I mentioned earlier, it links to a number of other articles. Uh, the article called I and Me, and Susan was think, uh, gracious enough to link it in the live chat. That article links to other ones that make some of the same points. And in that article or one of the ones linked to, they give the example of a football. You could say the football, that the substance that is the football is divisible. You could divide it into its top half and its bottom half. But the property of being opaque is not distinct to the top half or the bottom half. It's true of the whole thing. So likewise... It wouldn't be the case that the Father is one part of a divisible substance that is the being of God, and the Son is another part of, the, of a divisible substance that is the being of God, and the Spirit is another part of the divisible substance that is the being of God. That wouldn't make sense. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit would each be an abstract particular, a trope, um, an ab a, a particular property of the one undivided substance that is the being of God. So the model that I've offered, as far as I can tell, meets these seven criteria and others that may come up in our debate. In fact, I'll play one more card. Um, in his debate with Dr. James White, um, the Muslim metaphysician said that one, um, one criterion of an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity would be to say that the Son is ase, the Son has aseity, or or is necessary. Um, whereas uh, the, the, the an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, as I've extracted from the creeds, says that the Son and Spirit logically are contingent upon the Father. So that seems like a violation of orthodoxy, but um, those creeds, so far as I can tell, don't say that each that any one individual person of God is ase. In fact, the Athanasian Creed, if I'm remembering correctly, says the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal, but there are not not three eternals but one. And it says the the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated, and yet there are not three uncreateds but one. It says that. Well, what is so? How would you? How do you make sense of that? You make sense of that by saying that the attribute, the divine attribute of aseity, is an attribute of the being of God. It's not an attribute of any person of God. So you can say simultaneously 
that the son is logically dependent upon the father because you can say that one trope depends upon another. Um, but you could also say that the son has aseity because the son is God. The son subsists in the being of God. And the divine attribute of aseity is attributable of the being of God, not an abstract particular that subsists in it. So even if you take an eighth truth uh, on this list as being required for orthodoxy, namely that the son is ase, you can still do that, provided that you accept what I think pretty much all um, systematic the uh, theologies will tell you, which is that the, pro the the divine attribute of aseity subsists uh, is is attributable to the, attributable to the being of God. Because again, what does a creed say? The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. But there are not three eternals. There's one. So it seems to fit that. Um, here's a question that I'm just I, I'll, I'll try to think through live I haven't given this much thought prior to this moment but what about the doctrine of divine simplicity can somebody who affirms the doctrine of divine simplicity namely a classical theologian can they affirm the model that I've just offered well go back to the example of a football um, if the football is the concrete substance um, and if its opacity is an abstract particular, a trope instantiated or exemplified by the football, then um, the property, you can't attribute it to only part of the substance, right? You can identify parts of the substance, a top part and a bottom part, but they share the one property that is the football's opacity that subsists in the whole football's being. Well. So if you have a simple substance, one that cannot be divided, it would still be the case that any given property or trope of that one undivided substance would be true of the whole substance, right? Or it would subsist in the whole substance, not just a part of it. And just because there are no parts to the substance doesn't mean that you couldn't have three abstract particulars. Because that's the nature of abstract particulars, as they subsist in being, they're not concrete on their own. So you could say there's one indivisible simple substance in which subsist three abstract particulars. No problem. Even if, even if that divine, uh, even if that simple divine substance is just pure will, pure act, pure mind, however classical theologians want to put it, it would still be the case that that unified, indivisible, simple substance has at least one subjectivity inherent to conscious experience. And all I'm suggesting is that there are three subjectivities inherent to the conscious experience of God. So as far as I can tell, even if you add those two truths, eight and nine, eight being the sun is ase, and nine being um, the substance of God is simple and indivisible, even if you do that, it seems like the model I've offered is um, it affirms all these criteria, or at the very least can affirm all these criteria for an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And at the same time, it's logically coherent because there's nothing logically incoherent by saying that one concrete entity is subsisted in by three abstract particulars.
there's nothing as far as I can tell that's logically incoherent about that. So that is the model I'm planning tentatively, unless somebody can tell me where I'm where I've gone off the rails, that I'm planning to bring to my debate on December 4th with the Muslim metaphysician. Um, the persons are either the tropes themselves or the composite of the trope and its being. So you could say, so what I'll, what I'll argue, at least what I'm tentatively planning on arguing, is that either the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each just those abstract particulars, the subjectivities inherent to conscious experience, that each subsists in the one being of God, or... In which case, the, the in which case the persons are what those remember remember what I showed you those um, uh, neuroscientists and psychologists um, how they uh, the distinction they make between self as object and self as subject right so either the persons that are the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit are each self a self as subject. Right? That would be the trope, the trope that is the subjectivity of conscious experience, the perspective from which the avatar that was the PUBG player is being, from which it's being viewed. Um, in which case, like I said, the, the, the um, persons are self as subject, whereas the substance is self as object. Or, um, I, or person refers to the composite of both the object itself, the concrete substance, and the subjectivity, the abstract particular that corresponds to that particular person. So in that case, it would be something like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, they are each uh, they are each the same substance that is God, and the particular abstract particular that, that it's referring to. But either way, it seems to me, so, well, so, that, so that's what I would argue. They are either the um, selves as subject, each of them, or the compound of self as subject and self as object. And so far as I can tell for the reasons that I've elucidated here, it seems to me that that model is, or at least can be, both doctrinally orthodox and logically coherent. So what say you? That's what that's where I want to go from here. Um, as just about as best as I could possibly articulate and present it, um, here is what I offer as a both logically coherent and orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And I want to know where I've gone wrong, if in fact I have go wrong, gone wrong. I'll give you uh, an example of where you might hone in, and I offer this to Jake and to anybody else that's watching. Um, I was discussing with a professional philosopher my proposal here before I realized before I'd heard of tropes. Um, and I said, what if the persons are properties rather than substances? And he said, well, I have some concerns around the persons being properties. Uh, probably, I think he said that because properties classically defined are universals. And he said, but maybe if instead of a property you uh, say the persons are tropes, well, then you might be going somewhere. But but he's still reluctant to go there. So maybe there is a, um, a, a fatal flaw in my model located specifically in understanding the persons to be uh, tropes or the trope plus the substance exemplifying that trope. Um, maybe there's where a flaw is. But... 
I don't see a flaw there. Um, so I don't know. Let me know. Let me know if you can think of anything. Now, I want to say one last word, and and feel free to put any questions in the chat. I'm gonna stick around for a few more minutes and share some final thoughts here, having to do with thinking about the Trinity and defending it. Um, I, I want to speak to that in a moment. But while I'm doing so, if you have any questions or if you have some pushback, put it in the chat and maybe we can talk about it. If not, I'll look forward to your comments under the video or at the email address on the screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com. And by the way, I'll add, Muslim metaphysician Jake, uh, if you're watching this, um, you certainly don't have to share with me what you think are the flaws in my model. Before our debate, you could certainly choose to spring that on me, and I won't begrudge you that choice. But just remember, the reason I've done what I've done today is because I want to give you an opportunity to come at me with the most well thought out and articulated objections to my model in the debate, because I think that will be most helpful to our audience. But if that's the case, you might consider sharing those flaws with me in advance so that I can be prepared to defend my model from your objections as best as possible so that our audience is most edified by our interaction. But I'll leave that to you. Um, now, what I wanted to say about thinking about the Trinity is that I really think that we as Christians need to appreciate the value and importance of philosophically rigorous thinking. Don't get me wrong, I, <laughs> I am often very frustrated by philosophers, by Christian philosophers, because it seems to me as if many Christian philosophers um, first come up with their philosophy and then shoehorn it into scripture. Whereas I think the right way to do Christian philosophy is to let philosophical, philosophically rigorous thinking help us to make sense of Scripture. Now, in some cases, if Scripture is ambiguous and could be taken legitimately in multiple ways, philosophically rigorous thinking can help us to um, deci decide which among competing readings is the right one. But... What I don't think that gives philosophers license to do is just simply to come up with some philosophical model and impose it on scripture. And I very often see Christian philosophers doing that. That's not what I'm advocating for here. What I'm advocating for here is that we as conservative evangelical Christians need to stop poo-pooing philosophically rigorous thinking. I say that as somebody who is not very adept at it. So far as I can tell, I'm still learning. In fact, literally today, I am part of the way through uh, a course in um, advanced logic. I'm still learning. Um, but if we if we poo poo philosophically rigorous thinking the way that, for example, the independent fundamentalists in the country often seem to poo poo intellectualism or you know pentecostalism sometimes seems to poo-poo intellectually rigorous theology um you know if, if we if we throw philosophically rigorous thinking to the wind what we are doing is saying we can justifiably believe something that is logically incoherent 
And I don't think that's wise, because that's really all philosophy is meant to be. Philosophically rigorous thinking is logically rigorous thinking. And the God we profess to believe in and whose son we profess to have risen from the dead and to have died on our behalf prior to his resurrection and in whom we profess to believe um, is logic itself, <laughs> right? I mean, God isn't just logical. He is the embodiment of logic. Um, this is why the scientific enterprise took off beginning with the, Re the Renaissance. It's not because... Um, well, what it is because is because scientists were Christians who were convinced that the universe is intelligible because the God who created the universe created it to be intelligible. He is logical. He is logic embodied. Um, so, um, so if we're going to affirm a belief, a doctrine like the Trinity but say, I don't care about philosophically rigorous thinking, um, then you're basically saying you don't care that God is logical. And I think that's dangerous. Now, you might say um, there are truths about God that are logically um, indiscernible, uh, inexplicable. Right? So, for example, um, I think, thank you, Jesus asked, was it him? Um, or maybe somebody deleted it. Somebody said, are we just putting God in a material box? Yeah, thank you, Jesus did. Are we trying to box God into our material world? And, and, he, and prior to that, he says, since God is spirit and not made of matter, maybe he doesn't need to be explained according to our world. Well, yeah, that's true. The simple fact of the matter is, by virtue of being the, the, the transcendent creator, we will not be capable of fully understanding God. However, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do our best to at least understand him, uh, to, uh, to, to try to make our understanding intelligible. In a debate with a Unitarian, if you say, if they ask you, when you say the Father is God, um, are you using the is of predication or the is of, of identity? And you say, it's irrelevant. No, it's not irrelevant. You may not be able to articulate a, 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 a logically coherent model that encapsulates the truth, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not each other. Um, but don't pretend as if that doesn't come across as simply logically incoherent. And if somebody charges you your view with being logically incoherent, it will not do to say that I can't understand God because we do affirm that God is logical. So I guess all I'm trying to say is don't, don't be like the philosophers to the extent that they are guilty of what frustrates me about them. Namely, they impose their philosophy on scripture. But do be like philosophers in that you're committed to doing your best. And then your best won't be the same as everybody else's. But do your best to formulate and be able to articulate and defend a logically coherent model of a doctrine. Because if you can do that, then 
by the way, if you could do that, you're not even committing yourself to that model. You can treat it as a defeater to the accusation that your doctrine is logically incoherent. Because take, for example, the problem of evil. Um, you don't have to affirm any particular theodicy um, in order to resolve the problem of evil, the logical problem of evil anyway. All you have to do is offer one plausible um, reconciliation of that problem. And if there is one, there may be others. So likewise, try to come up with at least one model of the Trinity that, <clears throat> Trinity that you can articulate and defend that is logically coherent and orthodox doctrinally. And if you can, then you can say, no, I'm not even affirming that one. I'm just saying this is one model that is logically coherent and orthodox. There may be others. And so I can accept the truths, even if I have not um, firmly landed on one particular accounting of them. Yes, Jonathan Green, I, Jonathan Green, I agree with you. Open theism seems to be comporting scripture to a philosophy rather than the other way around. Arguably, I would say I would say the same is true of Molinism. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation, and I don't want to uh, alienate any open theists or or Molinists. Um, but anyway, so my urging to you is welcome the opportunity, nay, the responsibility to do your best to make logically coherent sense of the things that you believe. Because if you cannot, and if you say, I, I just accept it and I can't make sense of it, then you will be failing to remove an obstacle in your interlocutors, an obstacle to your interlocutors embracing of the Messiah. And as we Christians believe, uh, it's uh, the world is dying and they need, the world needs the life that only Christ has to offer. And if you tell one of, one among the dying world who is objecting to your belief on the grounds of logical incoherence that you just, you can't explain it, you just believe it. Well, I get the sentiment. I do. But how are you helping your interlocutor? Because that's a very common way for evaluating whether something could possibly be true. Is it logically incoherent? And if you tell an, uh, an atheist, a Unitarian... Um, heretic or a Unitarian Muslim that who, who objects to the doctrine of the Trinity, Trinity on the grounds that it's logically incoherent, if you tell them that, that, that I can't make sense of it, I just accept it because what the Bible says, well, you may be being pious, but are you being loving? Are you being helpful? Are you availing yourself to the Lord's use of you as an agent to bring about the repentance, faith, and salvation of your interlocutor? And the answer is no, you're not. I mean, it's, I suppose it's possible that some Muslims, Unitarian heretics, or atheists might, maybe they'll be moved by your piousness, by your piety. Maybe, but probably not. They'll probably say, yeah, that's what I thought. I'll move on. So, so consider the model I've offered here today. It's a little 
difficult to wrap one wrap your mind around. It's not the usual way we think of person. But as far as I can tell, it's logically coherent and it's doctrinally orthodox. And as Taylor Smith uh, said earlier in the chat, although it's making our brains begin to melt, it actually does make some sense. Uh, thank you, Jesus says, do you think that saying there are three persons in the Trinity is better than just saying there are distinctions between the three? No, I think that they, they, they are, uh, the, I think those are synonymous to say there are three persons in the Trinity is to say, is to say there are distinctions between the three. If there were no distinctions between the three, then there wouldn't be three. And if they are three, then there are distinctions between the three. Um, the reason, thank you, Jesus, that you get attacked when you say they are three persons is because we have become used to thinking that a person just means a personal being. A being that is personal. Um, and what I'm urging us to do is to understand person more carefully. And the way it seems to me that we can understand person in distinction from being, or hypostasis from usia, is the distinction between a property or trope and the substance in which that property or trope subsists. And provided that property is not understood to be a universal, but is instead a particular, an abstract particular rather than a concrete particular, then it seems to me the whole logical, the whole allegation of logical incoherence falls apart. And yes, it becomes mind-melting, and it becomes unfamiliar territory, but it fits the criteria for orthodoxy, and it fits the criteria for uh, logical coherence. Susan says, William Lane Craig says, there are three loci in one essence. Well, so what William Lane Craig does is say, in that article that I mentioned earlier, if you do a Google search for William Lane Craig Trinity, you'll find in the top five results, one of them says something like a defense of the Trinity or something like that. In fact, I'll look it up for you right now. Um, it is called A Formulation and Defense of the Trinity. Here, I'll put it in the, um, in the live chat. So this is, uh, this is William Lane Craig's um, model of the Trinity. God is a soul, that is a substance, a, a substance of conscious experience, which is endowed with three complete sets of rational cognitive faculties, each of them sufficient for personhood. And I'm inclined to affirm that. In fact, when I read that, I was like, holy crap, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Except that I perceive of those, I conceive of those faculties and the compound of them to be a property or a trope rather than a substance. Um, and that's fine as so far as it goes. The problem, I think, with William Lane Craig's model is where he thinks of one of these persons that is a confluence of cognitive faculties. He thinks of that as a part of of God. So here, here's a paragraph in his article. If, if the persons of the Trinity are not divine in virtue of being instances of the divine nature, in virtue of what are they divine? Consider an analogy. One way of being feline, remember how I showed you that slide that said uh, a cat's skeleton is feline and its heart is feline, but the, the, but the skeleton is not the heart? I got that from this. One way of being feline is to exemplify the nature of a cat. So you could say a cat is feline. 
Good. But there are other ways to be feline as well. A cat's DNA or skeleton is feline, even if neither is a cat. I should have said the cat skeleton or the cat's DNA. I've forgotten said skeleton brain. But anyway. He says, nor is this a sort of downgraded or attenuated identity, or felinity. A cat's skeleton is fully and um, un unambiguously feline, and a cat just is a feline animal, as a cat's skeleton is a feline skeleton. Um, and then this is the critical part. If a cat is feline in virtue of being an instance of the cat in nature, in virtue of what is a cat's DNA or skeleton feline? One plausible answer is that they are parts of a cat. This suggests that we could think of the persons of the Trinity as divine because they are parts of the Trinity that is parts of God. Now he does go on to say, now obviously the persons are not parts of God in the sense in which a skeleton is part of a cat, but given that the Father, for example, is not the whole Godhead, it seems undeniable that there is some sort of part, some sort of part-whole relation obtaining between the persons of the Trinity and the entire Godhead. Now, I'm willing, I, okay, so that's what William, William Lynn Craig says, I'm willing to say, I'm willing to concede that in a very loose sense, the relation of trope to whole or, or, or trope to substance exemplifying the trope is a part-whole relation in a very loose sense, but not in the sense that William Lynn Craig seems to want to use. And as evidence of that, I offer another paragraph in his article. In Greco-Roman mythology, there is said to stand guarding the gates of Hades a three-headed dog named Cerberus. We may suppose that Cerberus has three brains and therefore three distinct states of consciousness or whatever it is to be like a dog. Therefore, Cerberus, while a sentient being, does not have a unified consciousness. He has three consciousnesses. Uh, we could even assign proper names to each of them, Rover, Bowser, and Spike. These centers of consciousness are entirely discrete and might well come into conflict with one another. Still, in order for Cerberus to be biologically viable, not to mention in order to function effectively as a guard dog, there must be a considerable degree of cooperation among... Okay, so notice here, Rover, Bowser, and Spike in William Lane Craig's Cerberus analogy are parts of the dog Cerberus. But not just parts of the whole in the loose sense that a trope is a arguably part of the whole that is the substance that exemplifies the trope. It's, it's a much more strict uh, uh, sense of part-whole relationship. In fact, even if you focus not on the brain but on the mind of each head, you're still dealing with, well, actually, arguably, the, the analogy gets even worse because in the analogy, the, the consciousness of Rover, Rover subsists in the mind of Rover, the substance that is its mind. And I say that because I'm representing William Lane Craig here, who is a substance dualist. Likewise, the mind of Bowser is another non-physical substance, separate from the substance in which Rover subsists, similarly with Spike. So no matter how you cut it, um, this analogy, William Lane Craig's analogy, is a problematic, as far as I can tell, part-whole relationship. Because at worst, um, the three brains of these three persons are each parts of the whole dog, and only slightly better, the or possibly slightly worse, depending on how you look at it, the mind that is the substance of Bowser and the mind that is the substance of Rover and the mind that is the substance of Spike are three distinct substances. So he, because again, William Lane Craig is a substance dualist. So so there's all sorts of problems there. So Susan, what I want to suggest is that 
yes, the three persons are cognitive or sets of cognitive faculties, each distinct from the other. But I'm suggesting that these are tropes, abstract particulars. And that that's true of all persons, including angelic beings and human beings. Um, a human being is a single substance that exemplifies a single um, personhood trope. Where an, 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 an angel is a single substance that exemplifies a single personhood trope. But the substance of God and him alone, he alone, exemplifies... Um, the personhood trope multiple times over. And each one of those tropes is uh, an abstract particular. That's why they can both be, they can all three be God and yet not be each other. And it all seems to fit logically, coherently, and doctrinally orthodoxly, orthodox. But again, I want to hear where you guys think I've gone wrong. So anyway, I've been rambling for a while here. I hope that's helpful. Um, I hope that, Jake, you watch this, and if you do, I hope that you will um, let me know where you think there are flaws in my model um, before our debate. But if you choose not to, I'll understand. I am holding some of my cards to my chest, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I really do want to make this debate the best debate possible. I want it to be better than... See, there, there are basically two kinds of debates on the Trinity that I've encountered. Susan, okay, pause. Susan, you say my use of the word trope is different than how you understand what trope means. I suspect that's because you mean a literary trope. A literary trope is a recurring theme. So, the damsel in, the damsel in distress trope is a theme that recurs in multiple stories. That's, one, that's a literary trope. I'm talking about a trope in philosophy. And a trope in philosophy is an abstract particular. It's it's a it's it's like a property except that instead of being universal it's particular, but like a property it's abstract, not concrete. So it's a different sense of the trope. That's that's what I'm guessing, Susan. Okay, so Susan, that's where you're using trope in the sense of a literary trope. I use, I'm using trope in the sense of philosophy. Okay. Anyway, going back to what I was saying, I think there have been there are basically two kinds of debates I've witnessed between Trinitarians and Unitarians. There are either. Um, Debates focused on the text, right? So um, the Trinitarian will argue from the text in support of the Trinity, the Unitarian from the text in support of, of, the uni, of, of a unitary view of God. And in those debates, the Trinitarian always wins because the Unitarian has no biblical legs to stand on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dale Tuggy. I'm sorry, Sam. I'm sorry, Unitarians that might be watching this. Um, Biblically, you stand on no ground. But there is another kind of debate. And I dare say that somebody of whom I'm a large fan, large not just physically, but in terms of being a big fan, uh, and that's Dr. James White, in his debates with Unitarians, where the debate is more like one person talking about the text and the other talk person talking about logic, and that's what the debate was like between James White and Jake, the Muslim metaphysician. James White's case was exclusively biblical. And I praise him for that. Great. I love that it's biblical. I love that that's his emphasis. And his, that's where mine is, too. But if you're going to agree to a debate with a Unitarian whose focus is not going to be on the text of Scripture, but is going to be instead on the focus of logic, then what happens is the Trinitarian's biblical case seems sound 
but they seem to be running like uh, you know running or putting their head in the sand in the face of a logical challenge and that i think makes the doctrine of the trinity look bad it makes christendom look bad i want if if we as trinitarians are going to agree to debate philosophically minded unitarians let's grab the bull by its horns and do careful philosophy and that's what i think i've tried to that's what i've tried to offer here today to what extent i've succeeded i'll leave up to you and i will stop rambling at, at this point um i'll be back in two weeks as per usual that will be monday october 4th and what i'm going to be doing in that episode uh, by the way, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, just like usual. What I'll be doing in that episode is explaining why I think the spiritual gift of tongues that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 or 14, I can't remember which, I think 14, is not, and this is contradicting the charismatic view of tongues, is not an unintelligible hum, uh, prayer language. It's not an angelic prayer language that is unintelli unintelligible to humans. It is the gift of being able to, the supernatural gift of being able to speak a human language that one has not already been proficient in. And um, even most charismatics, it seem, grant that that is the nature of the tongues gift exercised in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Is it Acts 2 or Acts 4? <laughs> I'm not as much of a Bible scholar as I sometimes think myself. Um... But what they will do is they'll say the gift mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14 is different. That's this self-edifying, um, unintelligible to human ears, angelic prayer language. And I'm going to be arguing that no, it's not. It's the same kind of gifts we see, the gift we see exercised at Pentecost. It's the gift of being able to speak a human language one has not already been proficient in. Then, two weeks after that, this I'm really excited about. Two weeks after that, four weeks from today, it'll be Monday, October 18th. And at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, I'll be um, having another episode of the show, and I'll be interviewing um, the mixed martial apologist himself, Jay Warner Wallace, um, a cold case homicide detective, the single best, and by far, single best um, creator of PowerPoint presentations that I've ever seen. Um, I'm going to be interviewing him on his recent, recently published book, um, I think it's called, uh, crud, I've forgotten what it's called. Um, let me look it up really quick. Amazon. Person of Interest. That's what it's called. Person of Interest. So two weeks from today, I will be covering what tongues are in 1 Corinthians 14. And then two weeks after that, or four weeks from today, I'll be interviewing Jay Warner Wallace about his book, A Person of Interest. And we'll be talking about, um, you know, how... Uh, how his book can help us to be better apologists. So some exciting episodes coming up. Um, I don't know what I'll do after that. We'll see. But I hope that I'll see you in those episodes of The Apologetics. Um, and I guess I'll end there. See you next time. I've been your host, Chris Date. And thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. 
Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...